Um, welcome. It's good to be together. Um, my name is Paul Buckley. If you are a guest with us, recent visitor, we're so glad you're here. We pray God's blessing on you. Um, as we worship together as his people. Our prayer is that you would experience his great goodness and glory even. We are going through a series in Romans, and the plan for this morning was that I would not be speaking, um, that we would have a guest speaker, uh, well, not really a guest speaker, but our pastoral intern, Brendan, um, was supposed to speak out of Romans 3, continuing our series, but Brendan is sick. Um, he's uh, not terribly sick, but sick enough that he can't be here, so we can pray for him to, to get better. So uh, yesterday evening, um, I got the, the notice that someone else needed to preach today, and uh, so that someone is me, and God has providentially, I think, provided something for us that I think will serve us and does fit in line with Romans 3. So we're going to take a break from, Ro from Romans, and we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Um, and we're going to look at one of the many stories in Luke of redemption. Luke is full of these wonderful stories of redemption as Christ acts in his ministry to rescue people from their sin and their lostness. It's a wonderful book, um, and perhaps sometime in the next couple of years we can go through Luke again. Um, but we're going to look at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. The title is Jesus, Friend of Sinners. You've heard the saying, a picture paints a thousand words. Uh, well, these pictures in the Gospel of Luke are meant to paint a thousand words about our Savior and His kingdom. And this is why I think it helps us in Romans 3, because what we're going to see in Luke 7 is really a, a demonstration, a picture, a story of what Romans 3 is talking about. We're going to see it illustrated through the life of the people in the story. Stories are really important. Uh, stories teach us a lot about ourselves and about God and about life. And often truth uh, is, is better conveyed through stories. Now certainly just teaching propositional truth is important and essential, I would even say. Um, but, but so much of the Bible is story form. Much of it is propositional. It's presenting a truth. But so much is story form, and that's, that's important. I, uh, I remember stories, I'm sure you do too, stories from my childhood from growing up. Um, anyone remember the story of uh, Androcles and the lion? Remember the story? So it's this guy, he is, uh, I don't know, I think he's like wandering around in the woods for some reason. Um, and he is in a cave, and there's a lion in the cave, but the lion is wounded. And he has the option, actually, I think he has a spear with him, he could finish the lion off. Uh, but he instead sees that the lion has this giant thorn through its foot, and so he takes care of the lion, he pulls the thorn out. Some time later, uh, Androcles is in trouble. He ends up in the arena to be eaten, to be thrown to the lions. And there's, the lion is there, and he's a, it's this moment where he's going to be eaten by the lion, and guess which lion it is. It's his lion from the cave that he made friends with, and instead of eating him, he acts like his pet. So the story of Androcles and the lion illustrates the impact of kindness and mercy, right? That there's fruit, and there's, there's a... a, a consequences of being kind. It's a story. While this picture, this story in Luke, so much more illustrates wonderful truths about God and what it means to, to follow Him, to, to, to know Christ. 
So I think, again, it will illustrate Romans 3 well. So let's pray. Let's pray and ask that God would use this story to touch our lives and our hearts and through us also to touch others. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, I thank you that in your providence that we're here in Luke 7 today, we pray your healing and blessing on Brendan. We thank you for his hard work. And we ask that he next week could take us into Romans 3 at the beginning. But today, Lord, we want to hear from your word and we trust that you have specific purposes and changing the plan. Um, we thank you for this wonderful story. I pray you'd help me, Lord, uh, having reviewed this just last night, um, that you would help me to proclaim the truth, and through it, Lord, we would experience you and your glory and your ways. We thank you so much. Give us ears to hear. In this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 36. Speaking of Jesus, it says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt? And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? We even forgive sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. God's word from Luke chapter 7. So let's walk through the story and take some time to observe what's going on, to listen to our Savior's words. Uh, we'll walk through that and then we'll draw some less lessons from this passage and make some wise applications. I invite you through this story to enter into Simon's living room, to be at the feast, to observe, and by God's grace to learn. Now, 
if you were there at the feast in that culture, you would already know that eating and feasting together was a very important aspect of their culture. Who you ate with said a lot about who you were. You would not eat with certain undesirable people and you would be expected to invite to your home certain worthy guests and valued friends. So Jesus is such a, such a guest who's in this town and so Simon has invited Jesus. It's probably a special Sabbath meal. So it's a unique meal, not a normal meal, a special dinner. Uh, and things at, at special dinners, particularly, they would have a central table and they would lounge around that table. They would, they would lie down facing the table and their feet would be outward. They'd lie down on basically pillows and cushions. They would lean in and all the, all the guests would be around that table. The honored guests would be in a certain spot. In a place like Simon's house for a prominent person at such a meal, they also would make room for the poor in the city, in the town. So you could come in, actually, you couldn't sit at the table, but you could be there in the room. You could sit up against the wall, and you might uh, just be part of the conversation, listen to the conversation. You might get served some food, but it wasn't the same as being at the table. But nevertheless, you could be in the room. It was uh, a somewhat normal thing to do that. And so just imagine yourself sitting up against the wall, observing this dinner, observing what's going on. Now Simon is probably a fairly well-off and respected man in the town. It was kind of his job as, the, as the most, one of the most prominent people in that town or village to be the one that would invite Jesus, this traveling rabbi, this traveling teacher who was becoming very well-known. He was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were an association of mostly lay religious leaders. So uh, most of them were, were lay people. They were not uh, in a, a role as a priest at the temple or something like that. Um, and they, they were devoted to a strict observance of the Old Testament law. Um, they were, so they were this organization. I don't know, we don't have anything quite like that. Think of maybe something like the Knights of Columbus. Uh, they also had a, a strong political agenda as well. A, uh, so they're kind of like a political action committee, Knights of Columbus, community members. That's, that's what the Pharisees were. And so, so Simon is one of these Pharisees. He's a prominent person, probably well off. And he had this party. And he had invited Jesus. And so that's the scene for what's going on. This dinner. And here it... it it starts out in verse 37, so this sets the scene. He goes into the Pharisee's house, he's reclining at that table, and behold, so all of a sudden something happens. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner shows up. She comes to this place, and she's there, and she's got an alabaster flask of ointment. This is what we would call awkward. This is a woman that you wouldn't want, at least Simon wouldn't want to show up at the dinner party. Probably thinking, hopefully she doesn't come. Other people in the town who are poor, yes, but not that woman. And here she is, that woman shows up. She's obviously holding something in her hands, uh, this alabaster flask of oil. This is special ointment, special oil. Uh, the flasks that they use for this, it's a spe specific word, it's not a regular jar. Um, it's a special porcelain-like jar that was, you would use for very precious things. It was common in that day, actually, to 
invest your savings in such ointments. So you would buy it, put it in a jar, and keep it. And that was your savings. That's how you kept the money and the value of the oil. That's what she has in her hands. It's, it's probably, perhaps, her life savings that are there, m- much like Mary later on. It's the most precious thing that she owns, and she's there with it in her hand. And she makes her way to Jesus. She's standing at his feet. So can you picture that? As you're there in the room looking, watching this awkward moment, there she is. She's in the room. She's standing at his feet. Everyone's thinking what's going on. And she's there and she starts crying. Holding the jar. Standing behind Jesus, away from the table, near the wall, at his feet. She starts crying. And she starts wetting Jesus' feet with her tears. The, the words that are used actually for, for what's going on uh, in her tears are the same words used for a rain shower. So this isn't just like weeping a little bit. She is bawling. She is crying profusely. Tears are coming out of her eyes profusely onto Jesus' feet. There's a lot of water here. There's a lot of crying going on. She's weeping profusely. And she's soaking Jesus' feet with her tears. It's quite a scene. It's quite awkward. Everyone in the room, maybe except for Jesus' disciples, know exactly who she is. They know who she is, and that's why it's awkward. She is that woman. She is that woman that any good person in the town would avoid. She is that woman that every upright woman would ignore, any good man would avoid. She is that woman who always is in trouble and causing trouble. Perhaps a prostitute or an adulteress or some sort of hopeless outcast. She is that woman. It's that woman who shows up. It's that woman who causes a scene. It's that woman who's standing at Jesus' feet crying profusely with this jar of ointment in her hands. It says that she is a sinner. And that's not meaning generically. Certainly, we know from Romans 1, 2, and 3, we're all sinners. But this is a term used for somebody who is no longer making any semblance of an attempt to obey God's law, to follow the religious uh, observances that were required in that culture. She was considered to be alienated from God without hope and without compassion from the community as well because of her status. She is an exile, though living in the village. She is that woman. Not only that, but now, having cried all over Jesus' feet, she lets down her hair in public, no less. And she's using her hair to wipe Jesus' feet, to dry his feet, to wash his feet. It is outrageous. She's making a scene. She's uncovering her head, letting her hair down in a culture that that was only reserved for the bedroom and privacy. She's doing it there in front of everybody, letting her hair down, kissing his feet now, wiping his feet with her hair. It's embarrassing. It's awkward. It's inappropriate. And especially for a prominent teacher to be there, having this happen to him, having him allow it to happen. 
and then she's using this jar now of precious ointment to anoint his feet. Every eye in the place is fixed on the woman as she performs this outrageous act, and every eye is looking at Jesus' feet and then looking at Jesus, thinking, what's he going to do? He must know something about what's happening. And he is silently taking it in. He's not moving his feet. He's not stopping her. He's receiving her outrageous adoration in silence while the whole room in shocked silence is staring. Now, switch your eyes from Jesus and the woman to Simon, the man of the house, this respected Pharisee and leader as he watches this scene. Look at his face. On his face must have been a mixture of shock and confusion and deep concern. We know his thoughts, even as Jesus did, by virtue of the Word and by virtue of a, of a holy imagination. Think of what he was thinking. We're told this, but extend it. Think the sorts of things that are going through his mind. He's probably thinking, what sort of teacher have I allowed at my dinner party? He lets this woman stay here, and this woman is making a scene. What sort of teacher would allow a woman like this to touch him and contaminate him with her sinful tears and her sinful kisses? This is horrible what's going on. If he were a prophet, he would know at least something. Or if he had any common sense, he would know what's going on and do something about it. Who is this fool who calls himself a prophet? Doesn't he know anything about sin and holiness? These thoughts are all to himself. And Jesus knows his thoughts. What's so ironic, Jesus is certainly a prophet. He's the prophet of prophets. He knows exactly what Simon is thinking. And now the silence is broken as everybody is staring and wondering what's going to happen. Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> you know you're in trouble when Jesus says something like that. <laughs> I have something to say to you. Simon answers politely. Say it, teacher. He addresses him cordially. He's trying to do his best to do what's proper here, to, to not further make it an awkward situation. And Jesus tells a story. In the midst of this story, this true story we are reading about, he tells a story to illustrate a truth. Now, it's wonderful to read the Gospels and see how many stories Jesus told. Just a side thing, just to understand, again, the power of story, the importance of story. Um, this is one of the reasons why I, I wrote the, the book that I did. It's a story illustrating worldview. Stories really have an impact on us. And so just a side note, stories are important for us to understand truth. Stories are important for us to, to, to grasp and experience something, the truth that's there. And so tell good stories. That's, that's the lesson, I think, of of this, among many other lessons. Tell good stories. Tell them to one another. Tell them to your children. 
fill your life, fill the lives of those around you with good stories. And the very best are here in the Bible. So Jesus wants to convey something, so he tells this story within the story. It's simple and it's direct. There are two men who owe money to a local banker. One owes 50 days wages and one owes 500 days wages. That's what that word denarii means. A, a, a denarii, denarius, would be, uh, would be one day's wage. So 50 days wages, about $10,000. 500 days wages, about $100,000 or so, depending on how you calculate it. So the 10000 is is a significant amount, but it's manageable. You can pay that back at some point, hopefully. 100000 is a little tougher. It's a bigger amount. And so Jesus tells the story that these two people owe money, and the money lender, they can't pay it. They're not able to pay it back for whatever reason. Maybe they've gone bankrupt, and their business is gone, or something's happened. And the money lender cancels their debt. Not something that happens very often. But in this story, he cancels it. He just says, oh, forget about it. You don't owe anything. And then Jesus asks them, asks Simon, which of them will love him more? Which of the two will love the moneylender more? He's setting Simon up, of course, right? He's going to teach something. And Simon responds. You can tell, you hear a little bit in his voice, uh, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. I know what you're doing, and I'll give you the answer. Other times, the Pharisees won't answer his questions. But here, there's still, with Simon, enough of a relationship that he wants to be cordial. So he, he concludes what's obvious, the one with the larger debts. And this is the lesson that Jesus is getting at. He says, you have judged rightly. You have judged rightly. Not just about the story, but about the whole situation. About what's going on here about how you ought to think and feel about this whole experience, about how you ought to interpret and understand what's going on, about what heaven thinks about what's going on. You feel awkward about this, but heaven feels awkward about you and your behavior versus the woman. And so he turns towards the woman. He turns towards the woman to look at the woman, to acknowledge what everyone else feels is the most awkward thing in the room, to turn towards the woman and looks at the woman and speaks to Simon as he looks at the woman. He's making a contrast, a point in doing that. He's making it clear what's going on here. He's reversing the expectations of everybody in that room. They don't want the woman to be there. This is awkward. Simon is the man of the house. Jesus looks at the woman. He turns to the woman and he says, Simon, you didn't wash my feet when I came in. This was something that was a common courtesy in the day, by the way. That they lived, they had dirt roads. They didn't have paved roads, they didn't have sidewalks. And they wore sandals, open foot shoes. And so when you came in a house, your feet were dirty. And so it was a common courtesy to provide, at least to provide water, if not a servant, to wash your feet. And so Jesus says, I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but 
She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Then he said, you gave me no kiss. It was customary to greet friends with a kiss. That was how friends greeted one another. That's how you respectfully acknowledged an honored guest as well. It's a sign of affection and respect. It was common. Simon did not honor Jesus' way. But Jesus says, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't offer me this standard courtesy. She has not stopped kissing my feet. And then he said, you gave me no oil for my head. It would have been a sign of special honor to to anoint an honored guest with oil on their head. We don't do that. It seems strange. But in their culture, that was an important expression of blessing and honoring of a guest. You gave me no oil for my head, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So Simon's lack of love compared to the woman is a stark contrast that Jesus is pointing out here. Simon's lack is inappropriate. He tells everybody this. He tells Simon. And then he says something even more controversial. Verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who was forgiven little, loves little. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And this says, for she loved much. And you might think, is, are, is she forgiven because she loves much? But the word for for there is a word that's used not as a cause necessarily, but, but in view of. So another way to translate that. It would be, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And that is shown by that she loved much. That's the best way to understand that. He who is forgiven little loves little. It's a shocking statement that Jesus makes here that she is forgiven. Jesus knows, obviously, at this point, what sort of woman she is. Her sins are many. He knew all along who she was. He wasn't ignorant like Simon thought. He knew who she was. He knew exactly what was going on in her life. And he knew exactly what Simon was thinking. And he's responding to her appropriately because she is one whose sins have been forgiven. Her sins are many, but they are forgiven. They stand forgiven. The, the, the word there, the verb used, means that she's a forgiven one. It's not probably at that moment that it happened. We don't know the background here. But she's encountered Jesus probably before this time. We don't know. It, it could have been that she, maybe she was a friend of Matthew. We know that when Jesus called Matthew, Matthew held a party. And he invited all his friends to encounter Jesus. This person who had changed his life. He wanted his friends to know and to experience Jesus, so he had a party. And, and of course, that's what happens when we encounter Jesus. We want others to know. And so he had a party, and there were people there, and maybe this woman was one of them. We don't know. Maybe she just happened to hear Jesus in his teaching. As he went around and proclaimed the good news, the 
good news of God's mercy and grace and the call to repent and believe for the kingdom of God, the long-awaited kingdom of God where God would set everything right, is at hand. Maybe she heard Jesus in Matthew 11 as He said, Come unto Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We don't know the particulars, but it seems that she had encountered Jesus already. She had encountered the wonderful good news of God in the flesh coming to, to rescue us from our sins, coming to bring the kingdom. And she had found her rest in Jesus and put her faith in Jesus. She had new life and, and now when Jesus was in her town, she had to go see Him. She had to go there and, and give to Him her thanks and love. She couldn't help herself but to go and to worship Jesus at this party. So her experience of forgiveness and new life and all that that means is what's motivating her to go there with great love to Jesus for her many sins. Many sins. She is the debtor with many sins. She had to go there and express her devotion and her love and her gratitude. And Jesus receives it. He receives her devotion. And this radical, awkward, audacious act of love from her, He receives it. And He goes further than that. He pronounces her sins forgiven by virtue of the fruit demonstrated in her life, the reality of her love and, and the, her willingness to do such a, a, an outrageous thing is a sign that there's something that had gone on in her life. And so he pronounces her forgiven. And he says to her, your sins are forgiven. He pronounces her forgiveness. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is outrageous here. All that's gone on is outrageous for Simon and probably everybody in the room. And then this pronouncement at the end, a mere man apparently pronouncing someone forgiven, this is only something God can do. And so Jesus ups the ante of awkwardness with this pronouncement. And it's interesting to note, that's where the story ends. We don't know what happened, at least in this story. It ends with the pronouncement, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And that's not just some you know, polite thing, that's a blessing. And the word saved was a, a word that meant final salvation. Final salvation, the final kingdom. You're part of that kingdom, you're safe, you're saved, you're rescued. You are saved. Now go in the shalom, the, the blessing of God that He brings to His people. That's how it ends though. Jesus makes that pronouncement. It's awkward. It's confusing to them there. And then boom, it's the end of the story. There's no more. Why? Why does it end like that? Well, let me say why, why I think it ends like that. Because it's meant to challenge us with that tension. What happened? And in that tension, think about ourselves. 
who are we in the story? There's two main characters in the story, right? Two very different people. Two very different reactions. And I think the story ending abruptly there is, is to challenge us, where do I fit in in this story? Who am I? Am I like Simon? Or am I like the woman? And Jesus is presenting something here too. This, this isn't just about a nice story. This isn't just about Jesus' ability to, to turn a tale to make an illustration. It certainly is that, but it's so much more. Jesus is making it very clear that he is not just a prophet. He's not just a teller of good stories. He's not just a rabbi or a teacher. He is something much more. He is God himself. Because only God can forgive sins. Jesus is making it clear to us that, that we cannot have a Jesus that is anything less than God in the flesh. He's not just a good man. He's not just a good teacher. Good men and good teachers don't go around doing this sort of thing and then pronouncing sins forgiven in God's name as if they have God's very authority. Good teachers teach the truth and do the right thing. Jesus doesn't leave that as an option here, that he is a mere good teacher. Simon would have known this. Matter of fact, the Pharisees got it loud and clear. He was saying that he was much more than a good teacher, but God in the flesh. That's why he was condemned to death. And so this presents us with these two different people, but also the central person in the story, Jesus himself. And it presents us with who Jesus is, and then the question, who am I? In response to that. Am I Simon? Am I the woman? One is self-sufficient, self-righteous, self-assured. Much of what we read about, learned about last week in Romans 2. The other is a sinner without any hope in and of herself. One sees Jesus as a charlatan or a quack or maybe something slightly better than that, but not much. The other as the very Son of God and forgiver of sins. Which of the two do I most resemble? If you're here today and, and you have yet to put your faith in Jesus as God in the flesh, as the one who, only one who forgives sins, the only one who can bring salvation, the only one who is the ultimate truth, you are welcome. We think this is a safe place to process through these things. So in saying what I'm going to say, I'm not putting any particular pressure on you. We want you to think through this carefully. But I also think we have to acknowledge this story is making a pressing claim on you. A pressing claim on you. And perhaps you've heard of Jesus and you've studied him and you respect him. You see him as a good moral teacher and maybe even a great prophet. But if that is all you see him as, I would say to you from the story, Jesus will have none of that. He asks you through this story that you recognize that he is God himself, the only way to heaven, the only salvation, the only Lord. He says elsewhere in John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And he calls you through this story to consider this reality and choose to be the woman and not Simon. 
to receive all this good news that he brings, to recognize that you have a great debt that needs to be paid. And it can only be paid by Jesus. It can only be canceled by Jesus. Through his death, through his life, death, his resurrection, he pays that debt. He satisfies justice. The justice owed to a holy God for our transgressions and our sin and our falling short of the good we know we ought to do. Jesus alone, as God in the flesh, is the way of forgiveness and life. And so the story calls us to do what the woman does, to put our faith in Him, to run to Him, and to receive from Him His forgiveness, His love, and to follow Him as Lord, and to love the One who loves us more than we'll ever know. That's what this passage says to us if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus. This passage also has a lot to say to those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, who now, through that simple faith, belong to Jesus. It's wonderful good news, the the good news of the Gospel. Jesus died for our sins, rose again victorious over sin and death, and through simply turning away from self and sin and trusting in Him, we are forgiven, we're added to the family, we belong to Him, we're safe. Wonderful good news. But this story speaks to us even in that safe place. Because I think if you're walking through the story with me, you're, you're thinking, I'm not sure if I love like that woman does. And I'm not sure if I would ever do something so outrageous to express my love to Jesus. How can I love Him more? How could I love Him more? I think that's the question of every believer and that's the desire of every believer. Even though we struggle, even though sin still remains and, and our love is not perfect, there's no perfect Love yet until we go to heaven. But nevertheless, in our hearts is that desire, oh, to love Him more. Somehow to overcome this this propensity in me not to love Him. How do I do that? And this, this passage answers that question. It gives us wonderful truth to help us love Him more. And it says it right there in verse 47. I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So here's the, the proposition, the truth, that, this wonderful truth that helps us as those who do belong to Jesus. He who is forgiven little, loves little. He, who is for, he or she who is forgiven m- much, loves much. That simple truth is taught by Jesus here and is so helpful for us. Now, in the story, the 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 comparison is with Simon loving little, but Jesus is being gracious to Simon. I, we don't, I don't think Simon has come to Jesus for forgiveness. So there's no little sins and there's no little love. But nevertheless, the principle remains. He who is forgiven much loves much. And if you want to love much, you need to be forgiven much. Now you might think at this point, okay, That's a little unfair because, I mean, what am I supposed to do? Go out and do more bad things that I can be forgiven more so I can love him more? Is that what you're saying? And I thought that I'm forgiven for everything, so I just don't get this. What's what's going on here? How does this work? And I would submit to you that the forgiven much is more a matter of perspective than how many sins you have committed. It's your perspective 
on your sins and how much you've been forgiven. And no matter what you've done in your life, whether you've been really good, relatively speaking, not done some of the terrible things that others do, maybe in comparison to others, you look pretty good, but you know what? Compared to God and Jesus and His goodness, you don't look so good in and of yourself. Everybody has plenty of sin. Matter of fact, if I understand sin properly, it's an offense against an infinite God. Therefore, we can say it's an infinite offense, no matter how many, no matter what it is. Because He is perfect in His goodness and glory. He's only ever been good and kind to He's only ever been just and righteous. So think about how we, how we would evaluate this. If someone did some sort of bad thing against a bad person, we'd be like, well, that, you shouldn't do that. That's wrong. You know, if there was a bully and, and you stuck your foot out and tripped the bully or something, you're like, you know, not that bad. Matter of fact, you might even think that's a good thing. But if it was somebody's grandmother, this sweet grandmother, and you stuck your foot out and tripped the grandmother, you'd be like, what? That's awful. That's like the worst thing you could do. Because the person you sin against adjusts the, the size of that sin, right? And certainly if, if we think of God, He is perfectly innocent and holy and only good. And so when we stick our foot out and metaphorically trip God, it's pretty bad. So you don't need really much sin at all to count it as much sin. Because it's the sin against a perfectly holy God. And so what are we to do? If we want to love much, we need to recognize that we've been forgiven much. And we do that a couple ways. First, we consider just how good God is. We take time to meditate on His goodness, His kindness, His glory, how He's always and ever been good in creation. We all are sustained by Him and everything. Our bodies are made by Him. We're alive because of Him. I mean, we could just take time, and that's one of the wonders of science as we start to probe creation and see its glory, we could take lots of time to consider all the ways He's been good to us in His creation, all the ways that He is good to us, all the ways that He's glorious. So you want to start to understand the depth of your sin, understand the goodness and glory of God. Meditate on that more and more, and it starts to put sin in perspective. We see God's goodness we start to see what sin means because it's against one who is just so holy, just so good, just so incredible. Read the Gospels. Read the life of Jesus. Read these stories and start to see who He is. Who is this one that we rebel against? Second, consider how sinful sin is. Think deeply about how selfish and twisted and dark our sins are. That we would Doubt one so faithful. Think, what does it feel like when, when you have a trusted friend and they doubt your motives? They think that you're doing something selfish or underhanded and, and you did it in good. What does it feel like when that happens? If you feel betrayed, right? Like, terrible. Why? How could you even, th- I love you so much. How could you even think that that was what I was doing? And yet we doubt God all the time. I doubt him throughout the day. I'll I'll go from like, yeah, so confident to the next moment doubting him and thinking he's the greatest evil there is. It's awful. 
That's how awful sin is. To, to doubt God and His goodness. To, to choose to worship the created thing instead of the Creator. To want to enjoy the thing apart from Him. To not want to always be thankful. Always want to enjoy life with Him. That's, that's what sin is about. And, and there's a, an appropriate place to go to consider the sinfulness of our sin, to let the horror of our sin fill our minds. James says in James 4, 8-10, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. There's a place to, to humble yourself and, and not always be trying to laugh and be joyful. If you're not probing the reality of your sinfulness, the gravity of your sin, there's a place for that. That's part of what's going on in the story. The reason the woman is there because she knows what she had been doing. She knows what her life was like. And she knows the price that was paid to, to purchase her forgiveness probably doesn't understand yet all the truths of the gospel, but knows that Jesus took care of her sins. So she knew the weight of her sins. She understood it. And she understood the goodness of Jesus. Therefore, she loved much. So first, consider the goodness of God. Second, consider the sinfulness of your sin. And finally, consider this. That though your sins be as scarlet, though they be as dark as could be, though they be as ugly and treacherous and destructive as imaginable, though they be all these things, Jesus Christ has shed His holy blood to pay for all of your sins. And you are clean through Christ, through faith, because God has declared it to be so by the very resurrection of the Son. Though your sins are indeed many, in Jesus, they all are forgiven. And how could we not, as we grasp the truth of that, how could we not love much? How do we do that? How do we love much? We love much because of these things. We love much in acting like the woman as well. In light of what he's done, give him your heart, give him your tears. Give Him your most precious worldly assets. Kiss His feet. Worship Him. Love Him. Follow Him. Don't worry about the crowd. Don't worry about what others might think. For you to be so expressive and so devoted and so unlike others, even awkward. Don't worry about those things. Give yourself in sincere gratitude and love and walk in the peace that comes from knowing all your sins are forgiven. And you are loved forever. He who is forgiven much loves much. Let's pray.
Lord, I ask you for help because you are way better than we'll ever know. You are way more worthy and holy and glorious than we can ever know. Kinder, more innocent. And Lord, yet we are sinful and we don't even know the beginning of how serious our sins are. Help us to grasp this infinite distance, but then most importantly, Lord, to know that you have bridged that through Christ's death on the cross, through his holy blood shed for us. Give us power in these truths to love you much, we pray. Amen.